They can't hold them back. Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this. Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into human folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by... Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham. Today, and thank you for your patience, guys, we are going to be continuing our series on ideologies... And this one is one of the big ones. Uh, we've done a lot on liberalism and progressivism and uh, conservatism and a little bit on neocons. But we're doing socialism. Will you ever get it right? What, neoconservatism? Will you ever neocons? get it right? Oh, I looked it up. I looked it up, dude. It, you can say it what, either way. It doesn't matter. They both are acceptable by everybody on the oh. planet. So, Wait, which one sounds better? Conservatism or conservatism? Conservatism sounds better. That's the one that sounds Thank better. Thank you. You, that's what I say. Conserv- no, you say vism. No, the conservatism. Why are we putting this in? I'm going to edit this whole thing out. Okay. Before we get started on the episode of today, uh, the podcaster of the month is once again Agoraphobia, which will be running throughout the entire month of October. This is the second time that uh, the Agora Podcast Network has done uh, Agoraphobia, which is a fun play for uh, Halloween, which... Um, is important to many Americans and because many of our listeners are American. Um, so log on to the Agora Podcast Network and check out the latest um, episodes coming out for the Agoraphobia promotion. Scary stuff. Now back to the episode. So yes, today we are going to be discussing <laughs> the one of the big political ideologies of our time, which is broadly defined as communism, but within that is embedded uh, socialism, maybe a bit of communitarianism. Which is actually a lot bigger as an ideology. Exactly. Not, I wouldn't say it's... It is actually older, but yeah. it's also much bigger than, than communism, which seems to be a bit narrower. Exactly. Yeah, we seem to... Well, like the, we'll get the, into the it. The number of social, political, and economic systems that vary with under the, under the banner within the banner of socialism are much broader than communism. Yeah, and you know that being said, so we're going to go through the discussion of what these different ideological assumptions are. But before we get into that, what we're going to do is advertise ourselves, which is good. Obviously, keep listening yeah. to all the other Agora podcasts. Listen to and everybody. tell all the people you love, cherish, and hate about this podcast. So. If you find it torturous, then recommend it to all the people that you hate. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, if you hate it, recommend it to your enemies. If you love it, recommend it to your friends. (laughs) Um, But, um, yeah, and another thing, guys, I'm sure uh, it's relatively new, and I know that um, we have to apologize for the infrequency that we've been posting these, but um, we're going to try and post these more often. We've got one that's going to launch relatively soon, but by the time you hear this, it'll be ages ago, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but we have a new Patreon account, which you can find. There's a there's a link to it on our Facebook page. There's a there'll be a link to it on our website soon. And I would love to get some donations from you. Um, and if you donate a certain amount, you will let you choose an episode, which will be fun. Um, and I would also just like... What is that certain amount? Let's be more specific. Uh, is it $10? Yeah, let, no, no, because Patreon is a, is a subscription service. So let's say, if, to start with, let's say if you give us $5 a month, 
We'll let you choose an episode. And you can make us say whatever you want. You know, write us, Five bucks. write us jokes. We'll be happy to say them. Do you know what? I'm so sick of you dictating everything. I'm going to donate $5 to our account so I can start choosing which episodes we talk about. That's fine. I don't care. Do whatever you want. <laughs> I'm ta- but I'm taking my $5 back then. <laughs> So yeah, guys, have a look at that, and and uh, you know, as always, like and subscribe. But let's get into. The- but that, but just quickly, that donated money does go into helping us fund the show. So the the little equipment that we do need, um, microphones and buffers and headphones and the little the stuff that we do have to buy. That obviously that's where the donations go to, and that helps us bring an episode closer to actually our target, which is once every fortnight. Yeah. Uh, so those donations are very useful to us. Mm, absolutely, um, money's always good. Give it to us. Give me all the money. <laughs> if we were drowning in money, I think we'd, we'd start looking at expanding the show, but we'll, we'll deal with those rich people problems when we get there. Yeah, well, then I'd buy a recording studio. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> That'd be cool. But let's get into it. Of uh, Let's get into the assumptions of communism and, and essentially socialism. I think to begin with, I'm sure everybody has had some kind of exposure to... Um, to ideas of socialism and communism. Obviously, for our, our American listeners who make up the bulk of our listenership, if you're, uh, I suppose, a little bit older than Brock and myself, you would have grown up during the, uh, the the Cold War and been told that communism is evil and it's going to destroy the world. And um, for those people who are listening from Africa, um, you might have a very positive view of communism and socialism. Um, so, and it's it's a very heavily weighted subject and a very heavily weighted ideology. Which is why we try and bring it down to what are its assumptions as an ideology. And these are, they're interesting assumptions because unlike um, liberalism and conservatism, or conservatism, depending on how you want to say that word. <laughs> the right way would be preferable. <laughs> they have some very strong economic assumptions about human nature. Um, a lot of the philosophy was laid down by Karl Marx and uh, Friedrich Engels. Um, and they talk they they talk a lot about work and production and how that has an impact on human nature. But sorry to interrupt you here, but is that really where it starts? Because yes, it is. I would agree that it is economically heavy. That the assumptions that socialism makes as an ideology about human behavior are very economic assumptions, or they have economic implications. Let's put it that way. But is that where socialism began? Or, Aren't the assumptions, the body of um, thought that generated the ideology of socialism in the beginning, wasn't that more of a social understanding of capital uh, and and relations within the economy? Well, I think actually you'd have to go to to go really to the to the to the beginning of socialism. It's a, I think it is to a certain extent it's pre capitalist, it's pre economic um, because you're dealing with French a lot of French thinkers. Uh, the thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau were involved with a lot. Uh, were involved with this heavily, and um, as most of you remember, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was one of our social contract theorists who believed that society as it stands now creates a certain amount of conflict between human beings. That this is, uh, you know, we are conflicting with each other over. I suppose, in a certain sense, it does have an economic viewpoint because society forces us to enter into competition with each other over resources, over prestige, over um, whatever we we find valuable. And the arguments of the early socialists is that that is not natural to human beings. What is natural to human beings is cooperation, is communitarianism, is the sharing of resources. 
and that 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 is the natural state of humanity and we have been led away from that by our modern systems now obviously Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other thinkers like Charles Fourier and a whole bunch of other people in Paris who were involved with the Paris communes and you know the anarchic thinkers they were writing about the modern period what in the 1800s 1700s so their modern is probably a little bit different from ours but I think that their thinking has remained fairly um, applicable to the way that we view the world today it's the essentially that human beings are essentially good that we are good think people um, and that if left to our own devices, we will cooperate and share resources with each other. And it is only when um, it's, it is because of the political and economic structures that we start to compete and have war and violence with each other. OK, so in that sense, it's quite um, it's quite similar to liberalism in that it assumes the best of human nature, but it recognizes the need to address uh, this issue of competition. And we don't. We don't just compete for economic resources, but we compete for all types of resources. And, and the way that we and the way that we negotiate and the way that we distribute resources um, should be determined socially. Mm. And I think as well, it's the unit of analysis that gets shifted, because well, liberalism loves competition. It you know, liberalism in general thinks that competition between individuals brings out the best in us. And obviously, as we've discussed over and over again, liberalism focuses on the individual. At the, at you know, at, 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 as the be all and end all. Whereas the early stages of socialism and all the way up to socialism today, sees a much more communitarian viewpoint. It's the it's the community. It's the society that is important. The so- if the society is doing well, then the individual will do well. So if we make society good, then the individual will also be good. Whereas liberalism. And conservatism, to a certain extent, goes the opposite way. If we take care of the individual, then society will do well. Um, so I think uh, I don't know if you agree with me, Brock. Like that, those there's a there's a contending view of uh, the logic as it flows through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do agree that the unit of analysis is focused on the society, and that unit should be. But it, it when we start at that point, we realize that socialism intends for the benefit of all individuals to operate or to come through the society. So society needs to serve the individual. And it does that by proposing, socialism as an ideology proposes, that the society needs to control, not just control, but to own the means of production, to own the resources, mm. uh, to, to own the rules, to operate the rules democratically, mm. to operate the rules inclusively. Yeah. Uh, and to and to not just include all people, but to be pluralistic in its benefits, mm. so that everybody must benefit from the way that it's uh, the way that society operates. Yeah, and in that way, it's yeah, it it does sort of upend or turn the it flips the 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 relations on on their head, especially if you're used to conceiving society or or governance in terms of the individual comes first. Yeah. And seeing the individuals the, as the central unit of analysis. Mm. There is a, I mean, there's an interesting point to be raised there. And before, I, you know, I might be throwing a spanner in the works and asking you a question too early. But I, I, you know, it makes me think of Spock in Star Trek, who's, you know, constantly saying the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, which I think is a very communist and socialist way of looking at it. The sacrifice of one individual for the good of the society is acceptable um 
do you like i think do you think that that's more prevalent within socialist thinking than it is amongst uh, than it is amongst like conservative and uh, and liberal thinking uh, it's, I find that a very difficult question to answer because utilitarianism strikes a chord both in liberal and socialist ideologies mm. and very strong chords at that. The difference being that in liberal ideologies, the, it's not so much the needs of the few, but more that it doesn't just focus on the, on the community or the protection of the community, but it focuses more on competition. Mm. And if one person is going to lose out mm. because someone else or a body of other people are performing better then we should protect those people because of their based on meritocracy. Mm. Um, whereas while socialism endorses, believe it or not, it endorses, it was actually created to enhance meritocracy by allowing, by leveling the playing fields and addressing the imbalances of, of capitalism. It, it, it focuses more on the needs of the community. So it's not that it wants to give up the person who's not performing very well. It's just that if that has to be done to protect the majority, then it endorses utilitarian ethics. Yeah. So yes, I do. Th- I would say that Spock, that that Spock's line or his uh, mantra, it lends itself to a socialist ideology. Um, but I think if you're a liberal, you could also sort of paint Spock on your banner as well. Yeah, yeah. So those are the, uh, I suppose, the fundamental, very simple philosophical assumptions um, around human nature that that lies at the base of socialism and communism. But, but what does it look like economically, though? Because that's where socialism really um, grew in strength. Be, you know, bef- before Ma- Marxist th- uh, theories became popular in the mid 1800s, or at least became really popular in the late 1800s, socialism wasn't that strong, or wasn't that influential as an ideology dating back towards the early 18th century, mm. the early 1700s. That's because it was trying to. Well, like other ideologies at the time, it was trying to come to grips with the capitalist system, mm. which was in its infancy and was still the the nuances were still being ironed out. People still trying to grapple with how to implement this uh, this economic system in a just manner, uh, and so socialism couldn't contribute that much uh, to the economic world at that time. Mm. However, it was it did solidify itself as the theory or the ideology that was contributing thoughts of contradiction mm. of, of capitalism to, to indicate and point out that capitalism did not endorse equality and did not give everybody a fair chance to participate in the economy and so it started to try try to problematize it and try and answer the questions around how do we include more people and it wasn't trying to include more people for more people's sake it was trying to include more people for economic sake yeah it was you know just convinced that the we, the more workers we have the uh, the, the the better output we're going to have, the more uh, labor intensive we're going to be, and the more labor intensive we're going to be, the more efficient we're going to be, and the more efficient we're going to be, the more free time we will have to be creative individuals. Mm. Um, from the beginning, socialism was very lined up on those principles, mm. but it it only really became strengthened and sharpened when, when Karl Marx really fleshed it out as to how, how much uh, free time we actually need as people, and how much the state uh, is an obstacle, a giant obstacle to our individualism. Yeah, and I think you know what makes what makes socialism, what makes communism, and what we're getting to now, which is Marxism, which is what I think most people associate with communism, is um, that Marx was a, a, an amazing uh, thinker, 
um, which is why he's remained so prevalent up until this day. You know, he's he's one of the primary thinkers that you will, you know, be exposed to when you study political science, international relations, sociology, um, and you'll he, be exposed to him in in day to day life. He's a household name. Yeah, exactly. But you know, he's a, he's a, he's from an acad from the social sciences point of view, he's a giant. Um, and the yeah. reason for that, I th- the, the, one of my primary. Um, you know, values that I think Marx gave to the world was that the the production of social science it, when it was un, you know under the auspices of people like Hobbes and Locke, um, and you know Jeremy Bentham and the other thinkers in that time was that they were looking at the world and asking the question, how did the world come to be like it is, and how can we predict where the world will be um, in the future? That was the, and that's the scientific mindset. You know, uh, Thomas Hobbes looked at the world just after the English Revolution and the the war that was going on in the 1700s and said, you know, what what is it that makes politics happen like this? You know, what is the nature of politics? But he also he he wanted to stabilize politics, but he wasn't necessarily looking to change the system. What Marx did was he looked at the system. And he he not only said how does the system work, how does the system work, but he said how can we change the system so that it's not so fucked. And Marx, grew, uh, you know, based a huge amount of his work on Hegel, and Hegel famously gave a, a a scientific assumption that science's role in the world is to study the world, to just observe it yeah. and write it down, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. And Marx said to he- well, you know, said to Hegel. Uh, obviously across the span of time <laughs> said fuck you Hegel don't tell me what to do with my life you asshole you dead asshole I'll do what I want um, <laughs> and uh, he said no that as as if, if a scientist a social scientist if we see something wrong with the world we need to change that so the fact is the fact that uh, communism socialism and communitarianism in Europe already started from a very revolutionary perspective you know it was it was not just academics who were thinking about this. These were workers' parties and groups who were very unhappy with the status quo in Europe at the time. And then Marx, you know, Marx himself was, I don't think he was relatively, I mean, I think he was not rich, but I mean, he wasn't too bad. He didn't work in a factory or anything. He was an academic who spent most of his time in London. Um, but he he looked at the world and said, you know, yeah, this world is fucked. And this is where the the economic assumptions of the way the world work really come in. And just briefly, because, I mean, you could go on, on about Marx forever, his fundamental assumption is that in the way that the industrial world works, as opposed to what he classed as a feudal economic system, in the feudal system, if you were a shoemaker, you would be a cobbler, you would work in your shop maybe in the city or in the village and you would go out and buy everything you needed to make shoes and you yourself would make the shoes and then sell those shoes. Now obviously you would try and sell the shoes at a profit or more money than the total amount of the total amount of value of all the goods that went into that shoe. But that profit represented the time that you had spent working on that shoe. So it all equaled out in terms of value. And you got yeah. to experience a very personal sense of achievement. I made that shoe. Yeah. That shoe is mine. And we won't get into this too much because it's very philosophical. It w- but when you when we start to move to a industrial mode of production, 
we see that now we have pe- merchants who might have become rich enough to start to employ people. So that cobbler is now wealthy enough because you know his the techniques have, have improved or whatever, and he's able to sell more shoes. So he hires somebody to help him, and maybe an apprentice. And as the whole thing evolves, eventually he's not hiring an apprentice and teaching him how to be a cobbler. He's hiring a number of people, and they're all uh, taking parts in the steps that lead to shoe production. The so, end result... So each different component yeah, process of... Yeah, the, so each person One person's is, got laces, one person's got soles, one person's got tanning. Exactly, one person's the delivery boy, you know, one person's... Yeah. Exactly, it's all that he breaks it up, and he tries to make it as yeah. efficient as possible, and in this case he probably And we call that the division of labor. Yeah. Exactly. So he hires out a building, and we eventually started to call those buildings factories, um, and because they were manufacturing shoes. The issue with that now is that the cobbler, who's now a business mogul, and this is an immortal cobbler who lives for 200 years, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you did get family firms. You know, they, they ran for hundreds, over 100 years. Exactly. Some of them are still around today. Many of them are still around today. Yeah, so this cobbler, this cobbler's grandson, maybe, or if he's a vampire cobbler, he's just living forever. Um, he's, he now owns the factory. He owns all the goods that are going into the shoes, and he like Dracula. <laughs> no, he sells the shoes on at a profit. Now that profit is what we call, you know, the the surplus that's being staked off. But he gets to keep all that profit, and then he pays his workers what he believes to be a a good measure of their time so now what's happened is that the workers are no longer making a shoe and selling it they're selling their time to the employer and so what used to be go into making a shoe was one's pride yeah uh, and effort yeah and they sourced they sourced a great deal of psychological recognition out of their product mm. whereas now because they could see a shoe and they could see the use of a shoe mm. the, the utility of it uh, now it's becoming more difficult to see the use of a shoelace uh, i don't see myself in the shoelace as much as i see myself in the shoe i see my effort in the shoe yeah so you're saying there's more there's like this system what do you call it alienation alienation kind of yeah. removed from your from your effort or from your from your productivity mm. And I think, you know, Marx's theory of alienation is uh, obviously a whole other part of his theory, uh, which might not have as much political bearing on the, on this discussion, um, because it's, it's, it's more a psychological sociologist theory and a philosophy, I think. But um, what's important for us is that, you know, the, the, the worker, as you say, feels no connection to their work. However, if you paid the worker a living wage, you know, and by living wage we mean the ability to survive and perhaps get extra money so that they can improve their living conditions, maybe they wouldn't be so upset about their alienation. You know, they would find other ways to cope with that alienation. But unfortunately, what ended up happening in Mar- in Marx's time was that the owners of the means of production, which is the, you know what Marx called Marx called them the bourgeoisie. Um, as I'm sure you've heard your really annoying friend on Facebook call you. Oh my God, you're so bourgeois, guys. Um, <laughs> and the bourgeoisie owns the means of production. They're the ones who profit from that means of production. And in a lot of times, they weren't paying their workers what was considered a living wage. So people got pissed. Um, and, um, yeah. and, the, and the response to that, the, the pissed-off response to that system 
was to create a, a, a social ownership model to say that everybody should be a part of the means of production, everybody should be a part of the manufacturing process insofar as they're able to contribute value to it, and everybody should benefit from it insofar as they have needs for it. So socialism was very much concerned with what people can offer in a holistic sense yeah. uh, and, sat- and, and, and satisfy only what they needed. Um, writers and the giants like Marx were, were concerned with the excesses of capitalism, mm. where people consumed according to how much they could afford rather than consumed according to what they needed. Mm. And, they, and they saw, th- well, this was a problem because what ended up happening was the forces of, so that was the force of demand. It affected the force of supply because the cobbler now is not just making shoes for people who need to uh, protect their feet. They're making shoes for people who want to adorn their feet in glamorous gold and diamond jewelry. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're, they're not just making shoes for people to protect their feet. They're making shoes to satisfy a market of wealth and excess. Mm. And he saw this, this skewed the the forces of, of demand supply to only serve those who have, yeah. to only serve those who benefited most uh, from and this wasn't just be, those who benefited from demand, those who could afford to buy. But if they put two and two together to say that those who 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 could afford such luxuries were typically the ones who are benefiting uh, from the top of the of the means of production. So they yeah. were also being they were also supplying high end hats mm. and head cover to the people who were supplying shoes. So you found that the, the captains of industry and the, the the owners of all these businesses were were accumulating indefensible amounts of wealth at the top of the pile yeah. and swapping high-end shoes and hats where they were employing hundreds of people to just uh, to walk around barefoot uh, and and not be able to cover their heads. Absolutely. And so th- those extremes are what drove him to try and resolve the, the problems, these uh, excesses or this inequality of capitalism. Mm. So the social ownership model said, right, let's Let's try to produce everything according to what we can make uh, and more directly align it with the needs of people. Uh, can you remember, Peter, what is that famous line of socialism that they use? From each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Yeah. So so it's almost like they're trying to substitute the rules of demand supply uh, and the efficiency of reallocating resources with a... Uh, an ability needs model, if you mm. could call it that. So that's just me um, presuming to name it. So saying rather than trying to source what we the materials that we have, like leather and nails and and polish and and hand, and handiwork, um, trying to satisfy a need for uh, trying to satisfy a demand for high end shoes, we're rather going to say we have a I have an ability to tan leather. And to wrap it and to tr- and to treat it so that it's able to protect one's feet. Mm. And I'm going to and I'm going to give this to someone who needs it for an amount that they could afford. Mm. Um, and that's just one form of socialism. We 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 should probably get into the different forms of socialism. But that transactional model doesn't exist in all of them. Sometimes so, mo- uh, the socialist ideology will say, "No, we're just going to contribute all of the efforts of our production into some grand pile." Uh, and then from there, whoever needs the shoes can go to that pile of shoes and take what they need, but they shouldn't take anything more. Yeah. And you, and actually, uh, uh, you know, I'm, hopefully you read the, the Setwork book in school, mm-hmm. Animal Farm, written by George Orwell. 
it's an allegory of dystopia of these socialist models mm. and there's a, there's a, there's an old pig who kind of re- resembles Karl Marx and he's called Old Major and Old Major gets quite upset with the owner of the farm uh, called uh, I can't remember no the Joneses the, yeah the Joneses it was the Joneses and they called it Nana Farm and Old Major said uh, we need to have our own philosophy of animalism yeah um, and and so he inspired the animals one night to to create a, a better system for themselves, and he died shortly afterwards. <laughs> and this, and 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 the pigs, because he was a pig, some of the pigs took this and ran with it, and they were like, right, let's let's form a revolution, right? We're mm. going to fight the system. We're going to chase the Joneses off their own farm. We're going to rename it. We're going to call it Animal Farm. Mm. That's what they do, and they create they create seven commandments of animalism. But the point I'm trying to get to is in this farm. One of their, their commandments and their rules was set up so that the animals all contributed the, the best work they could afford to do. So, you know, the horse would plow, the, the, the cows would eat and produce milk, um, the, the pigs would use their, their, their wisdom to, to construct and maintain the rules, and everyone would agglomerate all the, the products of their efforts. And when each animal needed milk, they would go to the pots and they would drink the milk. If they needed apples, you know, they would go and find they would go to the pile of apples that the ducks had picked or whatever <laughs> if they needed some if they needed some justice to be to be de, uh, to be dealt out then they would go to the pigs for that um, and there was they assumed that there would be enough in, uh, uh, produced to satisfy what was needed mm. and uh, you know that's the animal farm provides a good uh, well I, I think the initial setup is great because he shows like well, you know, these animals have a right to be pursed because the Joneses are making pretty good money. They're selling the eggs on, they're selling the milk, they're making cheese. You know, they're value-adding a huge amount. Um, they're taking a lot of value from these animals. And, you know, the cow is producing all the milk that the farmer is selling on. And, you know, the horse is providing all the manual labor. And, you know, the pigs are getting slaughtered for being p- pork. <laughs> um <laughs> But all they get back is just, you know, the minimal sustenance they need to survive. Uh, whereas the the farmer, you know, gets a huge amount more. So it, it's about, it's the, the whole ideology is really about justice. Distrib- just And distribution. Yeah. Distributive justice. But I think the question that is probably arising in the minds of our more uh, intelligent listeners... <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> probably all of probably all of them <laughs> is well. Why do you? I mean, we've identified an issue. Karl Marx identified the issues, and he described them very well. But then Karl Marx said that people needed to revolt. There needed to be revolution. Rise up against the capitalist bourgeois master class and seize the means of production. There needs to be a, a proletariat revolution. Like why? Why revolt? Why can't we we do this politically? You know, we've we've sorted things out politically before. We'd rather do it without violence. And this is where this is where Marxism really starts to take off, and where Marx really lays down his theory of socialism and communism, where he says that there are the whole what he calls the superstructure of society is set up in a way that allows it to perpetuate itself, um, and. Well, regardless of how that's set up, that is always going to be the way. No, wait, let, yeah, let's just talk about how it's set up quickly because it's important. It's yeah, because we, we keep we're talking about socialism and it's bigger than than Karl Marx. It's bigger than Marxism, 
Uh, and one of the things that makes it big is it's not just an economic theory, it's also political theory. Yeah. Uh, so the way that this, just quickly, the superstructure is the political order. And he, Karl Marx quite succinctly describes how this political order is being captured by the economic uh, beneficiaries, by the top of the food pile. In the capitalist so system. Politi- yes. So if you're economically powerful, um, a democratic or state system, it allows capture by those wealthy individuals and mm. those wealthy groups uh, by the by, by what he calls the, the bourgeoisie. Yeah. So it's not just that 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 rich uh, people have a lot of wealth to accumulate fast to accumulate the, the more uh, additional resources in the economy, but and to concentrate more resources. But they also have the ability to purchase political power yeah um, and in that way they make the, the political rules that uphold the economic system mm. so they have they they write the bylaws uh, for economic justice for redistributive justice for the means of production for how things for how labor relations are managed whether or not labor unions are allowed to exist or not mm. um, and so and so he sees not ju- it's not just the economic system of capitalism that's corrupt but it's also the political state system that is defunct. And it's at that point where his contribution of the superstructure begins to evolve socialism into communism. Uh, begins to, So instead of just being focused on the benefit of society, rather focuses on liberating the community by revolutionizing the state system in a, and, and, and destroying it. Yeah, exactly, and the, well, this is where you know he he starts to really show his Hegelian roots. Is that Marx said that capitalism was a necessary step on the way to communism? Um, that communism is the end result of human endeavor. It's the end of history argument um, that you guys have heard us discuss before. Uh, like Francis Fukuyama is taking that from Hegel, and M- Marx also yeah. took it from Hegel. It's just that Francis Fukuyama believes that the end, or believed because he said he was wrong. Um, he believed that the end of history was liberal democracy and capitalism. Karl Marx believed no, the end of history. Well, he wasn't responding because he didn't know Fukuyama would exist. <laughs> he said. <laughs> He said that the end of history is communism. And the reason that that is the case, and you can show this, we can extend it through our animal farm um, example, is that in in the states of nature, you have all the animals living together in some kind of peace and harmony and doing doing their own things. Then you have the Joneses, or the humans in this case, coming in and starting to work with them in order to produce a value add onto what they do. But the Joneses are the ones who have the power. And in this example, obviously, the Joneses are the bourgeoisie. And as they gain more and more power in the form of surplus capital, they move from a feudalistic system, which is where they are maybe taking the top off all the goods and goods and services that are being rendered and using it for themselves. Instead, they move to a capitalist system where they use the deficiency in order to create a surplus value and sell that on to make a profit, thereby gaining themselves even more power and profit and then allowing them to set the rules of the game. But I think what's important, and this becomes so important for like critical theorists later on, like Gramsci, um, where they're not just setting up the rules of the game, but they're setting up the consciousness of the game. They're telling you what you are, essentially. So they're saying to the the horse, you are a horse. 
Your role is to plow. That's what you do. This is your identity. You are a cow. Cows give milk. I am a human. I take your production and I turn it into something better. And that's why and I, I, I reside in the position of power. That, that's just the, the natural state of things, um, says every major oppressor ever. Um, but that's, <laughs> and, and, and that's, what, that's what the bourgeois class does through the superstructure. They use the political superstructure to impose this view on society. Um, and eventually, this is where Marx says, like, no, this is going to start to break down because of basic economics. So Marx says that eventually the creators of the goods will no, will be as, – as more and more surplus value is taken off the top, as the Joneses start taking more and more and trying to get the, the animals to work harder and harder, eventually the animals will be, will be earning so little that they won't be able to afford – and this is where the metaphor starts to break down because animals don't buy stuff. So let's switch to real people. Um, but eventually, they won't be able to afford the, um, the the goods that they themselves produce. And when that happens, you will have the people being su- the the workers being super pissed off, the proletariat, and you will have the um, bourgeois people being super pissed off because they're no longer making money, and the system starts to shudder and groan and starts to collapse and you have a revolution because people are super pissed and that will then lead to a socialist system which Brock has described where you know you can have different models and we can pool our resources and the workers of the world unite and uh, take hold of the the means of production and maybe they rule it through a committee or through some other form but eventually Marx then says that it would lead to a point where once everything has been distributed evenly Given the fact that the purpose of politics is to reinforce the the, the structure um, of the economy, without an economy to reinforce, politics has no purpose, and eventually it'll fall it'll fall away. There's there's no need for the state, and we will all live in a utopia. That's a, yeah, that's a good description of how he gets there, how, yeah. how he gets to how he sees the redundancy of the state once economic, once the scarcity of resources has been diminished. Mm. Uh, so once nobody, when, once we've settled that there is no need for competition in the first place because there are enough resources for everybody, then there's no need to organize or to set up a system or, of rules where we can decide how to distribute those resources. Mm. Uh, so there's no need for a state. Uh, and that's important to notice that that's what the communist goal is, is to remove the state by providing sufficient resources. Yeah. Now. The argument within this ideology, within communism specifically, just to be clear, is whether or not that the ability of humans and workers uh, and everybody, every individual, to produce enough resources for everybody to live off mm. on a needs abilities model is sufficient. If it, if it, where they can really work, and this is where we really get to the heart of the assumptions of socialism mm. that be, that started this whole thing, which is that. Can people be incentivized to live their life in such a way that provides resources for everybody to live off? Yeah. And if they are capable of doing that, how are we going to organize it? Mm. So there was a there was this, a, a a dream that Marx had, a Karl Marx had, about how once this, once we reach that utopian level of existence and society. Uh, and, and in a closer sense community 
each person would be able to get up in the morning, go fishing, come back from fishing in the morning, uh, and head off into the market. Mm. Come back from trading in the market and tend their good, tend their their lands until the lands and farm for a bit, mm. uh, and then go to their books, study, and write poetry, and in one day attend to all the activities that a human's desires would have them attend to, and at the same time be producing enough to live off. Mm. So in other words, you lived a sustainable lifestyle. Now, that dream... Okay, I'm obviously paraphrasing that that description heavily. I can't remember exactly what Marx intended to do with his time. But <laughs> but in, in but in a world where that's possible, it assumes that, they, that each individual has the capacity to take care of all their own needs. Mm. Which is not, which is incorrect. Um, well, also Marx because Marx we, wanted we, huge we, amounts of mechanization. You know, he saw a huge future in the mechanization of industry and replacing farmers with, you know, machines, so that you could sit back and just, you know, kind of just watch the machines go. Um, so he was a bit yeah, of a yeah, science was, fiction utopist at the end of the day. Yeah, I can I can easily see him. Uh, I really believe that um, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, I'm sure he uh, had some Marxist inclination. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it, it's you know Star Trek, they, they've built a civilization, a mechanized civilization that that allows that allows human the human race and all other races in the universe or in the in the galaxy to build starships and explore. Yeah, and to just take care of their of the inquisitive needs and their curiosity and satisfy their curiosity. Mm. But yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't write Marx off as just assuming that we're all capable of farming and producing our own food and clothes. And writing our own books and taking care of everything that we need to live a, a healthy life, he did. He did uh, appreciate specialization, mm. uh, and that you know, once we, if someone is good at building machines, that that's all they do. But that the our efforts and our ability to evolve and, and to specialize means that at some point we're going to have the economy all to ourselves. That we don't. That we have a mechanized economy producing enough goods for us, and we don't have to do anything. We mm. can do whatever we want. Mm. Uh, but at that point, the benefits of that economy should still be distributed among the community, yeah. and therefore, there's no need for a state. However, the the just coming back to that debate, um, the debate is whether or not that model is as efficient as the demand supply model. Whether the forces of demand and supply which are built on you know the, the, the rational choice model and utilitarian ethics, that I know what I want and I know what the value of each thing is for me so I can apply a price to each good or service that I, that I want to purchase, um, that that model doesn't more acutely attain uh, a transition of value between consumer and producer. Yeah. So in other words, the reason why Marxist economics and specifically communism is not around today uh, to the extent that you know, liberal capitalism is, is because the free market has proven to be a better allocator of resources. Mm. And therefore, because communism is kind of, not written off, but is becoming forgotten, it's, uh, it's towards socialism that we return, that mm. we realize that perhaps it's not that we need to replace the capitalist system, but we it's about how we address its inefficiencies yeah. and how we address its excesses more specifically. Mm. So, it, it, good. Peter, how do you, where's your stand on that debate? Which model do you see working and how can we learn from the, the contributions of communism? Yeah, well, I think, I think one of the biggest problems is that, you know, Marx was wrong. 
you know, Marx made two fundamental mistakes in his analysis. The first was his, you know, his economic analysis, which you can't really hold against him because he, he wouldn't have known any different. Was his idea that, you know, as as people were, I think harder, that's saying him off a bit lightly. Yeah, he was an arrogant German. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a bit. What are you saying? All Germans are arrogant? That's not been my experience, no. Brock. Okay, just like no. what you? I'm saying German racist. Yeah, Ger- <laughs> Fucking Germans trigger warning! Height. You triggered me, Brock. God, I thought this was a safe space. <laughs> Uh, G- Germany has the second highest is the second highest producer of philosophers behind France. So uh, the strength of philosophy behind Germans is very high. So a philosopher sits and writes a lot, of, a lot about stuff. That's what I mean. Yeah, well, so you As can't trust those French philosophers. So. Yeah, I think that they were counting like every second farmer in, in France <laughs> is a philosopher. But yeah, so I think and a musician. And a musician. By the way, the French are very commie. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, so the, the one assumption he made was that, you know, as workers get worse off and worse off and worse off because of the, um, you know, the disparity, a bit, you know, of the terms of trade between their work and what their work is being sold for, that eventually it would lead to revolution. And he predicted that that revolution would take place in the most industrialized nation of the time, which was England. He would have, I mean, Marx would have been... In, very surprised to learn that the first communist and socialist revolutions to take place was in Russia, which was an agrarian economy. It was still basically feudal. He would have said, well, you know, you can't do that. What are you doing? Um, and the reason it didn't happen in England was because England had a strong democratic um, model and its its leaders were able to see in time what was on the horizon. So the revolution may have happened, but it's and this is, you know, I think that there are some socialist thinkers who, who are a lot smarter than me who might immediately argue back to me and say it is because of Marx that the revolution didn't happen. His his writings allowed for socialist parties to form in England with enough credibility that allowed them to stop the revolution before it even started, which I think, I mean, it might be a valid argument. I don't know. We're getting into counterfactual history. But the, the thing is, is that the British Parliament started to pass a whole bunch of laws. They legalized trade unions, for one, which allowed workers to get together and um, campaign for better working conditions. They, start, they started to pass a whole bunch of laws that you know, mandated a minimum wage, that you know, mandated safety regulations. They started all of these things that led to what we have today. And you know, now we get to a point where England is saying, well, no, people deserve health care, regardless of how much they earn. They deserve healthcare. They deserve education. They and that's is this is the idea is that we need to share the products of our society amongst everybody. That is socialism. That is you know one of the greatest parts about socialism. So you, your European nations today are socialist. Well, I suppose what we would call socialist capitalist states, as Brock just said, they are ways for socialism to mitigate some of the damages of capitalism and that being said as well the 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 one of the other problem is is that when you get to a more communist way of doing things where you know you have a big pile of resources in the center of the of the of the you know whatever people are just producing can they produce enough to actually feed everybody in the nation well it's difficult because what do you do when you have somebody who's doesn't work very hard. What do you do when you have somebody who's a painter or a poet 
which you know yeah. are they going to put their, their paintings on the pile and everybody gets a free painting I'm, is a I'm so glad you asked that question because I was thinking about that exactly at, at the exact time that you said it what do you do with people who are good at things that don't contribute to people's survival exactly if we're taking from people according to their abilities and we're only giving to people according to their need then we never we, what, the, what do we do with um what do we do with fashion designers? Yeah, and this you know, what is do we do why with the, with the creative arts because that's I don't I don't need a painting. Exactly. I don't I don't necessarily need an architect. I need a structural engineer, mm. uh, but I don't need to design my house. And, and I don't need a philosopher. That, I don't need a guy who's going to sit in his room for the next I, forty years. Somebody needs to make the rules, buddy. Somebody <laughs> needs to be the. No, but I'm talking okay? about like your. You know, we have we've had philosophers who sat in universities for forty years. And spent a huge amount of time working on thoughts that eventually changed the world, but like they still needed to eat, so they're not producing anything in that in that time that it took them to reach their magnum opus stage, yeah. you, you know. So, yeah. that, the, but that still needs to be cultivated. Now, the, so, the socialist system. You, I'm not saying the socialist system doesn't think that those people are valuable. I'm saying that it doesn't reward behavior. So. Yeah. You know, our society, that's one of the things that the capitalist system is very good at doing. Our society as a whole decides, oh, we think that this is valuable, and we decide it's valuable because of the amount we're willing to pay for it. So we think that, yeah. that being an artist is a valuable thing, so we pay artists a huge amount of money. Um, you know, and that can, but, that can but, go wrong as well. But, <laughs> but in, in the, you know, while we defend capitalism's ability to allocate value a lot better um, it's that strength that makes its own weakness because it places so much because it enhances our greed so strongly yeah. that it forgets it forget, it negates other principles principles that arguably come from socialism principles that are such as need community need there are there are people who are defenseless in society. Yeah. There are people who cannot afford anything. There are people who cannot contribute anything. They don't have the necessary input. They don't have the skills. They haven't had the education. They don't have the health that they can sustain that they can hold down a job, mm. um, mental or physical health. It's just that at that level that we need to accommodate additional principles that um, that preserve the marginalized that include them in the system. Yeah. So. So here's a question for you, Peter. What, what processes are currently exist and are inherent to socialism that afford a decision-making process that is less capitalist? I'm not sure that the uh, I'm not sure that you can attribute economic models to to like to, to the political ones, if that's what you mean. You know, like is this a capitalist? No, it doesn't have to be. No, I'm saying there needs to be. A better capitalist. Oh, sorry, I don't think there needs to be a better economic decision-making process. Saying what, what political principles can socialism provide to make our world better? Well, I think that the I think the model being used currently in the Scandinavian countries is is a good one so far, um, which is allowing what, what models that well allowing the free market to spin. Um, you know, you, you you do not hinder the free market. As much as possible, and with that possibility being limited by the damage that it does to society. So, capitalism creates wealth, surplus wealth. Awesome. That's fucking fantastic. However, it, if it rewards somebody, that reward is inherently a zero-sum game. If somebody is rewarded, another person must be punished by not receiving that surplus. 
that yeah. now to say that that doesn't mean that that person doesn't deserve to eat and live it means that that person failed in a capitalist system but they haven't failed as a human so yeah. that surplus wealth needs to be redistributed and this is something that the yeah. the Scandinavian countries do very well they allow their markets to to spin quite nicely um so for instance take Norway which is uh, you know dominated by a very large um I'd call it an oligopoly I suppose um Uh, Nokia uh, Nokia provides you know a massive amount of wealth to the country but that being said taxes also well not so much high. anymore take take salmon yeah well I mean, Nokia does well I don't know fine salmon whatever <laughs> but their, their, their economy <laughs> provides them with a lot of wealth that being said their taxes are also very high however they spend those taxes on healthcare university education uh, school education uh, free You know, women have access to um, feminine hygiene products for free. Uh, you know, all the things that make life easier, you just get. Now, I, I think an American capitalist would be like, well, then they have no motivation. You know, they're not going to do anything. But that's not the case. They do a lot. You know, they go to university. They, they do, you know, the Norwegians just carry on with doing what they want to do because that's what we all want to do as humans. But so they've yeah. managed to, and not not perfectly. I mean, I doubt that like Nor Norway must still have a homeless population. Who knows how yeah. well they're doing with regards to mental health, which is something that you know us as a species is only really starting to tackle now in a humanitarian yeah. way. So there, there are things that need to be solved. But in terms of that decision making, it's still hierarchical. It's still. It's still something that I think Marx might have a problem with. That Marx might, you know, if you could bring Marx into the future and say, "Okay, look at this. What, what do you think?" He he might say, "Look, I mean, it's not bad. You know, people are obviously better off now than they were in my time. However, I still have a problem with the fact that there is a superstructure. There is a there is a political structure that is reinforcing an economic system that is making some people rich and some people poor. Um, and yeah, he would but, have a problem. But we don't want to go. We don't want to go full commie. We, you know, we've, so we're not going to consider the communist state as a as a viable alternative. But what was a social with the, the Scandinavian countries being socialist states or being the best socialist models that we can look at right now? We could say that they have a higher tax system. Yeah, um, they they pay more taxes. But how can we reform their governance processes? So as to better resemble a socialist state, how do we improve inclusivity, for example, or how can we make government more accountable in those countries? Is that even a problem to begin with? Do people want to be more to feel more included in political processes? Do they want to be closer to their political representatives, for example? Well, this is this is one of the issues that I have with socialist and communist thinking in general, and, and an argument that I constantly have with people who consider themselves socialists um, and communists. And that is the, the, the idea that everybody wants to be involved in politics and decision-making, which I don't think is true. And this becomes evident when you look at the historical situation that occurs when you break down the hierarchy and say, right, everybody gets a say. And this is well represented in, um, in the uh, animal farm. You know, so everybody on the yeah. – all the animals get a say. It's one man, one vote. Everybody gets a, a say in what to do. But Napoleon the pig – his name was Napoleon, um, the bad guy. He's a very yeah. smart, charismatic 
pig, but he's also Why a dick. He, yeah. I mean, he's also a, yeah. a, he's also a bad person, and he's a bad pig. He's a, he's a bad pig. I don't know. Is he is he a person at that point? He's an intelligent pig. I don't know. Whatever. He's a bad pig, and he manipulates the committee in order to get the things that he wants. And this is exactly what happened in Russia. Um, you opened up, you created these Soviets, which is the Russian word for a committee or a, a society, I suppose. Um, and you had these committees with some people are just not good at being part of a committee structure, being part of a decision-making structure. They are very easily swayed by somebody who's charismatic. Um, and when you break down the checks and balances that are stopping that, you have what I like to imagine is that that first instance in you know the post-apocalyptic movie where the you know there's one person who stands up and says right I'm going to be the leader but the rules yeah. have broken down there are no rules so there's yeah. no way to le- for him to legitimize his power or her power and then well, there's then. always somebody in the crowd who says oh who put you in charge why should we listen to you and the interesting thing is there's no good answer to that question it's like well Yeah, good point. Nobody put me in charge. I suppose the fact that I'm taking charge puts me in charge, but honestly, I have no legitimacy. So that person who is obviously a dick has just as much legitimacy to take control as I do. And they they, they inadvertently do, because unfortunately, it turns out that dicks have a lot more self-consciousness, you know, sorry, um, have much more self-confidence than people who aren't dicks, um, which is just part of the dickish nature of the world. And... (laughs) The fact is, is that selfish dicks exist. They exist everywhere. You know, we all know them. Now, I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I have to contend with that person in a committee structure where we're trying to solve the best way to divide up resources. And I'm not saying that the majority of the world are bad people. In fact, I think that there's in a group of 10, you might have one person. And even that, I'm, I'm saying that it's a very small percentage of the population who is a selfish asshole. But the fact that they exist allows them to take control when you have this like open socialist communist structure. So I don't think that we should have that. Uh, you know, we need checks and balances. We need the ability to control people like like Donald Trump, for instance. Like, look at uh, now. Imagine you stripped all the rules and, and regulations out of the American system, and Donald Trump was just and everybody was put on an equal playing field from a political power perspective. But everybody kept their wealth, you know, or, you know, even just put Donald Trump in a room yeah. with people. You, of course, he'd be able to persuade a certain amount of people to his side. And, you know, the, 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 the immigration bans that he's put in place would have just gone through. They wouldn't have been stopped by the checks and balances. So yeah. I think, you know, that, that's, that's one of my biggest issues is that the fundamental assumption of human nature that is held by communism and socialism is that humans are inherently good and when removed from yeah. society will act in the best regards of the community is bullshit yeah. there are some people who just don't and our society we can't kill them because that's barbaric our society needs to be set up in a way to suppress their ability to gain too much power yes and i think that that's being enhanced at the moment not their not the checks and balances but their ability to gain power is enhanced by the reward we place for greed Nowadays, people are rewarded for their self-interest. We think you're a good person if you're ambitious and if all you chase is your own interest. Um, whereas if you don't really care for other people, ah, it's not so bad. It's okay. You know, Nobody really has to care for the homeless people. That's yeah. their problem. Why didn't they sort themselves out? Yeah. Um, and we see this in Animal Farm when the pigs realize that they've got the power to make the rules and eventually start using that to 
uh, accumulate more apples and milk because that's uh, you know that's what satisfies their their greed. Uh, and eventually put themselves in the humans' house. They uh, actually start bartering and and form trade deals with the neighboring farmers. Yeah, uh, and exclude the other animals from that and uh, um, shorten the seven animal commandments to one, which is the famous all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yeah. Uh, and then and at the end of the book, if you want to read the book, don't listen to this. <laughs> but at the end of the book, um, they are playing poker. They're playing cards with the, with the neighboring farmers and the Joneses, actually. They invite the Joneses over. They're playing cards in the kitchen or in the living room. And Napoleon sneaks an ace of spades out of his sleeve or something, and they end up having a big argument about it. And this entire scene is being witnessed by the animals through the window of the house. Uh, and the concluding line, I think, is that the animals could not tell the pigs from the humans. Yeah. And that's that just goes... To, look, when George Orwell wrote that book, he was writing, he was writing the allegory of the 1917 Soviet Revolution yeah. in Russia. Uh, but in his critique of socialism and, at that level, communism, he also highlights the unchecked greed that, can, that plays a significant role in liberal capitalist democratic systems now while we don't need to do away with democracy perhaps the amount of liberalism we afford capitalists and capitalism as uh, a ruling economic system needs to be revised according to socialist principles and that's I, I absolutely agree with you and I think you know we're reaching an hour mark um, and there's there's so much more we could discuss on this we could go on this forever but that will be my final point on this is that for the, for those of you who haven't Go and listen to maybe our our episode on um, inequality and, and and this episode yeah. as well because you know that's what, what what we're really talking about. We're talking about how unfair and fairness and justice being relative terms in today's society that it is absolutely unjust the the inequality in the world, and we can stand to have a bit more socialism in the world. We we can yeah. stand. And although Marx was wrong in, in his specific assumptions, he was right in his analysis of how the capitalist model functions. And that, yeah. you know, he, he was correct in his assumption that prices will continue to rise unless you can inject fresh capital in. And we are going to reach a point where our capital, I mean, we, we've, we've already colonized the entire planet. You know, it's, it's done. So unless we start, you know, colonized? Really, Oh, no, we like you know, we we occupy every every part of this planet now. So unless we start to inject fresh resources from outside the planet, oh damn! I was really hoping for a private island. <laughs> no, there there no more. Well, I mean, if you get super rich, I suppose you could buy it off somebody. But yeah, so you know, we need to start. But then I'd be a capitalist. I'd be a bourgeois. <laughs> we need to start looking at the redistribution. We need to start, um, and I mean, we're. I don't. I don't feel too pessimistic about it. I think we're going to get there. I think that the the backlash that exists now, I think that the election yeah. of Donald Trump is a backlash against the inequality in the world. I just think that the wrong thing happened. They just did the wrong thing. Mm. But the fact that people are pissed off is 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 a good thing. And um, yeah. you know that's what really needs to happen. Is is I, I agree with you, especially interstates. You know, I think that African states could could deal with could could stand to have a bit more socialist principles, as could oh, yeah, America. Let's not get into global the global economic system of governance, uh, the global economic governance. Rules. Absolutely, that yeah. will be uh, for a lot longer. But um, let's uh, yeah, let's say that although maybe his solution was faulty or, or perhaps historically premature, his uh, analysis and critique 
Marx's analysis and critique of capitalism still resounds today. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. Send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F. L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast and if you didn't listen to that directly then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes Hope you enjoyed it guys, thanks so much